0: Uh, our passage today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to uh, verse 13. That can be found on page 1149. That's 1 Corinthians 8, chapter 8, 1 to 13 on 1149. Now, about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we possess all knowledge, but knowledge puffs up, while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. Even if there are so called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat the sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us nearer to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened, emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way, and wound their weak conscience you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. This is the word of the Lord.
1: It's your graduation from the University of Corinth. So, Your mum and dad come to celebrate, and naturally, as everyone does, they book a table at the temple for a meal afterwards. But you've recently become a Christian, so do you go? Your first grandchild has been born, and uh, you receive a letter through the Corinthian Post. Dear mum and dad, we would love for you to join us to celebrate the birth of our daughter, Saturday, 10am at the temple, please RSVP, will you go? You've just secured a business deal at work, so your boss invites uh, you and the whole office to eat at the temple to recognise your success. The boss has forked out a lot of money to put this on, and not showing up would be career suicide, will you go? These are the sorts of problems that uh, Christians in Corinth faced on a daily basis. It was a society that sprung up without the influence of God's word. And so pagan idol worship was an inseparable part of their culture. Shrines, temples, rituals and ceremonies, all of that would be a constant reality of day-to-day life. Every home, every street, every workplace... Uh, everyday idol worship. We need to get a sense of just how integral idol worship was to uh, Corinthian society. Idol worship to Corinth was like the internet is to us. It's, It's just integral to our society. Without the internet, you're not really able to be part of 21st century UK culture. And So, without idol worship, you weren't really able to be part of first-century Corinthian culture either. Inseparable. And so we come to the subject of food sacrificed to idols. In the letter to uh, the Corinthians, the first one that we've been going through over the past few months... We've reached a point from chapter 7 onwards where Paul is addressing practical issues that the Corinthian church have raised in a letter that they sent to Paul. So um, in these chapters, uh, we're often going to notice quotation marks. And where we see those, that's because either Paul is quoting the letter itself or sayings that the Corinthians had more generally. Um, So chapter 7, verse 1 starts... Now for the matters you wrote about, and then talks about marriage. Chapter 12, verse 1 starts now about gifts of the Spirit. Chapter 16, verse 1 starts now about uh, the collection for the Lord's people. But we're in chapter 8, which starts now about food sacrificed to idols. And chapters 8 through 10 are all about this one issue So if you're looking for sermons that are hitting the big relevant issues of your life, you are clearly in the right place. Um, but, But actually you are. If a Christian has family members from another religion, or if a Christian has family members that practice ancestor worship, this is directly relevant to them should you go to events where such practices take place. But there is another link for all of us which isn't quite so obvious. Unlike Corinth, we live in a society that was founded and then shaped largely by biblical principles. However, there is no such thing as a Christian country, is there, no such thing? Every culture is godless and sinful to some extent. Every society has its idols. And so there are always going to be rituals and ceremonies uh, that show you belong to this godless society. If you're a Christian, should you join in? Should you go? And uh, we're going to think about some specific examples a bit later. Um, In the letter that the Corinthians sent... It seems like they were saying something along these lines. We know there's only one God. We know idols are nothing. So eating idol food doesn't matter. Let's join in. They might even have had some kind of evangelistic concern. Um, we don't want to seem weird. That would be bad for the gospel. So let's just crack on and be like everybody else. <laughs> Let's try to fit in. But Paul's got several problems with this. He would say to them and to us that joining in is not quite as harmless as it might seem. And chapter 8 is his first objection. We might say that it's technically fine to join in. But God would say it's better to be loving than right. Better to be loving than right. Uh, That's the big idea of this chapter here. And uh, in verses one to three, we see this backed up as a general principle. Um, As I read, consider all the different ways that love is better than knowledge. Verses one to three. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. When they say we all possess knowledge, um, they're not saying that uh, they're super intelligent generally. And they're not saying that they've received some kind of special revelation from God. They mean to say on the subject of idol food, we know what we're talking about. Paul gives two reasons why love is better than knowledge. First reason, uh, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge without application, it, it inflates an ego to bursting point. And perhaps those of us that have been taught the scriptures well over many years need to be particularly careful of this. I think it's fair to say that we're a church that's been blessed with good teaching. But we need to be careful. You can't build a church on knowledge, or a family, or a friendship for that matter. Such a church would be like an inflating balloon. Yes, it's growing, but really it's empty. And at some point it's going to either deflate or burst. It's only love that's truly constructive. Love builds up, we see there. A self-giving, others-focused heart is what really builds a community. A church, a family, a friendship that builds with love is far stronger than one that builds with knowledge. And the second reason why uh, love beats knowledge. Knowledge is never complete. But love means being known completely. This too talks about those who think they know something. Um, I once thought I knew about constructing flat pack furniture from Ikea. However, I did not yet know as I ought to know. And, and all knowledge is like that. Whatever you're learning about, whether it's ants or galaxies or philosophy, um, studying those things is, is coming to terms with just how much we do not yet know Our knowledge is never, never complete. And and those who arrogantly pretend otherwise, they just don't know what they're talking about. However, those who love God, and here we might expect Paul to say something like, they really know something. But that's not actually what verse three says. To further undermine our confidence in knowledge we see that the only knowledge that really matters isn't even possessed by us. It's possessed by God. Those who love God are known by God. And of course, in one sense, God knows everybody. But the one who loves God, a Christian, has been brought into a new and lasting relationship with the omniscient creator of the universe. To be known by him, I think it means that 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2 is true of you. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. To be known by God means to be his. Christian, he, he sees you, he knows you at your very, very worst, at your very, very weakest, when you are in the darkest depths of your sin, God knows you and even then he loves you, he loves you, he wants you and even at your worst, not when you're kind of on the mountaintop, not when you're having one of your good Christian days, even at your worst, your God sent his son to die for you. Love is clearly better than knowledge. So um, better to be loving than right. So that's the kind of big general idea, better to be loving than right. And from in the following verses, Paul starts to apply this principle to the specific issue of food sacrificed to idols. He's writing to challenge the Christians that are saying it's totally fine to go to the temple. But first, he's going to establish some common ground. He starts by agreeing with them in verses 4 to 7. We know, and here's our next title, we know there is only one God. He puts this negatively and positively in verse 4. We know that an idol is nothing in, at all in the world and that there is no God but one. An idol is nothing, there's only one God. Um, These are two ways of saying the same thing. Those shrines, uh, those uh, statues in the temple, those figures in the shrines, they're not real. There's nothing to them. The Old Testament is is completely merciless in its mockery of those who worship idols. In Isaiah uh, chapter 44, there's a blacksmith who is uh, hitting iron. And he's beating it into the shape of a god that he can worship. And he's doing it with the strength of his own arm. But after a while, he gets, he gets tired. He gets weak. And he, he starts to feel faint. And if even this, this blacksmith, this creator of, of this iron god is weak and tired and faint, what does that say about the idol? And also in Isaiah chapter 44, there's a, there's a carpenter who's chopping down a tree. And uh, he splits it in half, and half of the tree, half of the wood, he, he uses for firewood and bakes himself a loaf of bread to keep him going. And the other half of the wood he uses to create a god and bows down before it and says, save me, rescue me, I worship you, you are my god. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, isn't it? It's ridiculous. There is only one god And and this didn't change in the New Testament, obviously. Um, When Paul mentions so-called gods, many gods and many lords in verse 5, he's not talking about kind of reality. He's talking about life in Corinth, where there were just gods and lords on every street corner. Um, Archaeologists have found temples and shrines to 17 gods in uh, digs around the city of Corinth, and there were probably way more than that as well. So verse 6 repeats the monotheism of the Old Testament, but with a bit of a Trinitarian spin. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. It's really great, uh, theologically rich language there, isn't it? In biblical terms, um, the titles God and Lord are of equal magnitude. And, and the Father is just as much the Lord as, uh, and Jesus is just as much uh, God. And, of course, the same is true of the Holy Spirit. What comes across in this verse is that they are equally one, and they are as one working both on the big scale and the small scale, as one in all things and in our lives. One God. This knowledge was the first step in justifying going to the temple to eat idol food. There's only one God. The idols aren't real. And Paul is saying, I know this, you know this, we agree. But there is a subtle challenge snuck in in verse 6. Knowing that there's one God must affect how we live. This one God is the one for whom we live. This one Lord is the one through whom we live. It's not just about knowing, it's about living It might be possible to know that there's one God and continue doing everything everyone else is on their way to the temple. But really knowing is acted out in real life. Real knowing is acted out in real life. We might all tick the theological box, only one God, but our actions show what we really believe. The subtle challenge for their man for us is this: knowing there's only one God means living for only one God. In verses seven to eight, Paul finds another reason for common ground. Uh, we we know eating idle food doesn't matter. We know eating idle food doesn't matter. The Corinthians said, we, possess, uh, we all possess knowledge. They knew there was one God. They knew idols weren't real, so they were happy to eat idol food. But there were some people in the church that weren't quite so sure. Verse 7, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. I don't think this means that some people in the church were polytheists, believing in many gods. Rather, they were just really used to idols. It had been part of their life. They probably grew up surrounded by them. And so the association in their minds between the idols and some um, False god that dominated their life in the past was really hard to shake. They'd been used to looking at these idols and thinking that they represented powerful, domineering deities, and it—it it must be really hard to switch off that significance, even though, of course, they believe now in one true God. And as a result, if they were to ever eat food sacrificed to idols, they would think they had done something terrible. But Paul says those people aren't actually right. That's, that's how they feel. That's what their conscience convicts them of. But, but they're not technically right. Verse 8. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. In saying this, he's agreeing with those that are going to the temple. They are technically right. The very act of eating has no spiritual significance. The idols are not real gods, so the food hasn't actually been offered to anything. So Christians in Corinth are no worse off if they eat idol food. It won't affect their relationship with God. But again, even in finding this common ground, there is a subtle challenge right at the end. You are no better if you do eat it. You can imagine some of these um, Corinthians puffed up with their superior knowledge in this matter. Exercising their freedom to eat. But that doesn't make them better Christians They cannot look down their noses at those that don't have the same knowledge that they do. They can't look down on those with weak consciences as as lesser, as inhibited, as overly religious. There is no benefit from going to the temple and eating. We shouldn't look down on others that don't exercise their freedoms either. So, we know there's only one God. We know eating idle food doesn't matter. The Corinthians so far seem to be right. Uh, eating food sacrificed to idols is fine. However, at the end, we come back to the big point. Better to be loving than right. And loving the family of believers means being very careful not to cause anyone to fall. Uh, That's our our next one. Don't cause others to fall. Jason grew up in Corinth. He was uh, familiar with temples, shrines, with food sacrificed to idols, just as everyone else was. He was part of Corinthian culture. But he heard a rumor about a new group of people that had come to the city. And the claims that these people were making just seemed weird. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But, but Jason was curious, and, and so he went along to one of their meetings, and, and he was struck. He was struck by how kind, how loving these people were, but, but more than that, he was struck by the stories of a person called Jesus. After a few weeks, he decided to follow Jesus, and he turned his back on his old way of life. He found that, for him, he couldn't even look at an idol, let alone go to the temple to, to eat food offered to an idol would, for him, feel like such a betrayal of Jesus, whom he now loved. And yet it was hard. It was hard going for Jason because his family thought he was completely losing the plot. He was in danger of losing his job because he wasn't uh, getting involved with uh, the rest of his colleagues. He was feeling really the weight of this, like a social outcast. And then one day, Jason saw an elder from his church. And this elder was just calm as you like, blazingly heading to the temple along with some of his colleagues to eat a meal there. And, And this just threw Jason completely. Like, here's an elder. Here's someone who is an experienced Christian, all out for Christ, and yet he's, he's going to the temple. He's eating food sacrificed to idols. Jason is completely thrown by this. He's completely um, lost his center of, uh, of gravity, lost his direction. And so, even though it still feels like a betrayal to him, he feels that it, it can't be worth dealing with all this pressure, all this difficulty. If, if, if one of the elders of my church is going, then I'm going to go too. He betrays Jesus in his mind and he goes back to his old way of life, not just eating at the temple, but going back to worshipping the gods he used to worship, getting back involved with uh, all of the things associated with that and he leaves the church and his faith in Jesus entirely, all because of the actions of this one elder that was technically right. That's what Paul wants us to be careful of in verses 9 to 13. That's how he concludes, yes, you might be right on this issue, but you could do great damage in the way you exercise your rights. Verse 11, so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. And this this weak conscience, it's, it's not that This person is more prone to temptation. It's just they they don't share the same knowledge as you. And therefore, Paul comes to the conclusion if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Where does this land for us? In every society, there are rituals and ceremonies that show that we belong in a godless culture. Um, there are countless in our society. Where do people go to worship? And do we join in there? What about um, if your work is putting on some inclusion training? And uh, you know that there's going to be content in that training, uh, about LGBT issues and it's going to be against everything that you know from the Bible. It's going to be very much a case of bowing down at the altar of inclusion. Technically, it's not sinful to attend. I mean, just being there and sitting in a chair is not a sinful act. You could be sitting there and completely disagreeing with everything that is being said from the front. And yet there's another Christian in your office and they see you going and what are they going to infer from you being there? What about um, another popular worship place, uh, the pub? Let's say you... um, you move out of Banstead and you, you find yourself attending a church which is more conservative in the way that they think about cultural issues. And you start volunteering as one of the youth leaders. And all of these young people in your youth group, they've been brought up to believe that going to the pub is is sinful. Are you then going to go to the pub? What might you, you might be going there and just having you know one or two, and, and, it's, and alcohol isn't a particular temptation for you, but, but what is your youth group going to infer from you going there? You've got to think that through. What about um, Halloween, uh, particularly close to um, the issues here. Uh, is it sinful in and of itself to dress up? No. Is it sinful in and of itself to go to a party? No. But what might others infer about you participating in something with such dark roots? We've got to think these things through. I think in each scenario, we've got to remember two things. First, ask that other Christian how, how, how do you feel about me attending this inclusion training or this social at the pub or this Halloween party? Like, Is, is, this, is that going to be a problem for you? You, you might uh, explain your reasons. You might explain that you're attending but you're not participating in, in certain aspects of it. But if it's still a problem for that Christian... Absolutely, 100% do not go. There is a great danger. That Christian in your office, um, they might see you attending and they might go all in, in total uncritical approval of LGBT issues and cast aside what the Bible says. That youth group, they might go to the pub and not just stop at one or two, They might throw themselves into alcoholism. And of course, the same could be said of Halloween. It is so much better to be loving than to be right. That is what will build up this church, your family, your friendships. That is what is good for the gospel. It is so much better to be loving than right. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for how you have loved us. Thank you that you know us. At our worst, at our most sinful, and yet you still love. Thank you that you still want us. You don't just love an illusion of us. You don't just love what we could be. You love us in all of our sin, and you sent your son to die for us. Thank you so much. Father, we pray that you would help us have a similar love for our church family, and Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom when it comes to issues like this. Lord, we pray that no one here would fall, and especially we pray that we ourselves would not be the reason for them falling. In Jesus' name, amen.